history of the education of women in Torah takes us back to the city of Prague. The rabbi, the chief rabbi of Prague, Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, known as the Maharal, the Maharal of Prague, uh, popularized the study of Kabbalah in his community. Those who studied Kabbalah had a different philosophy, a different approach to uh, education than the average observant, committed, practicing Jew. Nowhere in the world were women being educated in philosophy, theology, uh, or sciences. But those who studied Kabbalah began to educate their daughters in all areas of Torah, in all parts of Torah, including the Kabbalah itself. One such example was the Maharal's wife, whose name was Pearl. We don't know a lot about her background or her family, but once she was married to the Maharal, we know that they spent time together studying the Talmud, the Code of Jewish Law, and Kabbalah. The Maharal was a prolific writer, and uh, we know that all of his works were edited by his wife, by Peril. We even know of eight occasions in which she had to correct his quotes or his references from uh, the Talmud and from the commentaries. She said of herself that since she was a teenager, not a day had gone by that she hadn't spent at least five hours in study. It's therefore difficult to imagine that when the Maharal created his humanoid, created the golem, that he uh, didn't uh, in, didn't uh, tell his wife or that she didn't know that this was a golem. The tradition says that she didn't know, and there are these stories about how she asked the golem to, to do something and forgot to tell him when to stop, and since it had only artificial intelligence, it had to be told when to stop. And she, but these stories don't don't ring true because that was it was not expected. It was not in character with uh, Pearl uh, and and of the Maharal to leave her out of such a project. This became a tradition among those who studied Kabbalah. There were those very traditional Jews who were very much against the study of Kabbalah. They mocked it, they ridiculed it, they thought it was, it was uh, either blasphemous because the study of Kabbalah was too holy, too intense, too mystical for the average person, or they called it frivolous and irresponsible, and, uh, and since, not, since the Kabbalah didn't seem to be of practical importance, they considered it frivolous. One of the descendants of the Maharal and of Pearl. Uh, the Maharal, by the way, uh, traces his family tree back to the house of King David and, in fact, had a family tree printed up, uh, written up, 
that uh, that actually mentioned all the names of the uh, of the predecessors of the ancestry that uh, that led back to King David himself and, and his son Solomon. One of the descendants of the Maharal was a man by the name of Reb Schneir Zalman. This was not the Alter Rebbe. This was the grandfather of the Alter Rebbe after whom he is named. He married a woman called Rachel. Rachel. Rachel's father, whose name was Baruch Batlan, that's how he was called. His real name was Baruch Portugaler because he came from Portugal. He was among those Jews who fled from Portugal during the Inquisition because he refused to convert to Christianity. Uh, Baruch Batlan, as he was known in the, uh, in, the, in the area, was a great scholar, a very pious man, and he was associated with the Baal Shem of Zamasht, which was a, pre- a pre-runner for the Baal Shem Tov. And this was a group of hidden, hidden mystics, all of them who studied Kabbalah. And because of that, Rabbi Baruch Batlan educated his daughter, Rachel, from a very young age. And she was a scholar in all areas of Torah, in the Talmud, in the codes of law, in Maimonides, and, but particularly in the practical laws of everyday life. When she was engaged to Rabbi Schneir Zalman, who had no idea that his father-in-law, his future father-in-law, was a member of the secret group of, of mystics and that his intended wife was, in fact, a scholar. When they had gotten married, uh, Schneier Zalman very innocently um, checked with his wife and said, uh, are you familiar with the laws of a Jewish home? <laughs> and, and she kept it a secret from him because not everybody was comfortable in those days with the idea of a woman being a scholar or being learned. One day, after they were married, it was a Shabbos afternoon, and they were all walking home from the synagogue. There was a Baruch Batlan, his son, Binyamin, Rachel's sister, and the son-in-law, Reb Schneir Zalman. Rachel was walking with her mother and her and a friend. They were all walking home from Shul. Now, in the, in the different uh, towns and townlets in Europe, uh, people practiced the laws of carrying with some variations, some being more strict than others. For example, in some areas, according to the authorities of that area, no gloves were worn on Shabbos because they can be removed and then accidentally carried through the street. And so the only time a person would wear gloves is if they were attached to the sleeve. In the city of Posen, where this Baruch Batlan lived, there was an Eruv around, around the town, around the city, and um, which permitted them to carry on Shabbos. An Eruv means that the city was encircled with a, uh, with a rope, with a cord, uh, on posts that kind of enclosed the entire town so that it made it all into one private property. And so you were allowed to carry from the house to the street 
and you're allowed to carry in the street itself. And so they wore gloves on Shabbos, as was fashionable in those days, uh, without sewing them to the sleeves. As they were making their way home from the synagogue, the men were not only wearing gloves, but they were also carrying uh, their 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 talus and uh, I think it was the brother Binyamin who was carrying some of the some books that he was going to study at home. As they were walking along, a um, a man came running up to them, saying that the Arif had broken the string that was enclosing the city, that made it all one property or one area had been severed, had torn, and they were no longer allowed to carry in the street or from the street to the house. Now, they all stood there a little bit caught by surprise, a little bit perplexed as to what exactly they should do now with the gloves that they're wearing and the things that they were carrying. To everybody's surprise, Rabbi Baruch Batlan turned to his daughter, Rachel, and said, Rachel, you know the laws. Tell us what to do. He then turned to the men and said, of course, we are all great scholars, but sometimes when you get very scholarly, you kind of forget the practical everyday law. She knows, so we'll go by what she says. And he turned to her again. He said, go ahead, tell us. What should we do? What is the exact procedure for being caught in the street on a Shabbos afternoon when you're with, with things in your hands and you're not allowed to carry. Well, at first she was hesitant because she wasn't sure what her husband's reaction would be to, the, to discovering that she, was, that she was a learned, scholarly woman. But her father insisted, and shows, so she told him. She said, the gloves we can continue to wear, since we're already wearing them, and the danger is that we might forget and remove them from our hands and carry them rather than wear them, but since we're all together, we will, we will not permit that forgetfulness and we will remind each other so that danger doesn't exist. So we can continue to wear our gloves. The objects that we're carrying, we have to hand it to each other within four cubits. Because you're not allowed to carry a distance of four cubits in the street. So we'll hand it to each other so that no one person carries the object for, uh, whatever, six or eight feet. Then when we get to the house, we will have uh, a non-Jew who works in the house, we'll have him take it from our hands and bring it into the house. That non-Jew is allowed to carry, so that's not violating any laws. That's the best procedure, and that's what they did. When they got home, they immediately hit the books to look up the law and see whether that was, in fact, the best procedure. They looked up all the commentaries and all the uh, footnotes on, on the code of law, and having discovered, having d- discussed all of the possibilities, they came to the conclusion that of all the possibilities, that was the most appropriate and the most correct thing to do. We are told that when Epshneir Zalman, the Altarebbe's grandfather, realized that his, do- that his wife was actually a scholar, he immediately suspected that, that her family was involved with this secret 
community of Kabbalah studiers, and he was quite shocked and demanded a divorce. His father-in-law then sat down with him and introduced him to the study of Kabbalah, and he became himself a student of Kabbalah. And from then on, in that family, the family of the Maharal, the family of Pearl, the wife of the Maharal, the family of King David, the royal family in, in Jewish life, and then the grandson, the Alter Rebbe, the education of their daughters became a norm. The Alter Rebbe's daughter, Dvorlea, was a great scholar. In fact, she was quite a saint. Um, and uh, the story of her self-sacrifice uh, is well known. And so it became the norm for daughters to be educated. The rest, of course, is history. The education of women took off <clears throat> two or three generations ago when uh, yeshivas were actually created for women. It was a formal education, not, not just a father teaching his daughter. It became a formal education. It became a schooling of women. And, of course, today there is no subject that women cannot study or should not study. And the more study, the better, because what we feed our minds is what influences our heart, and the heart influences our behavior, so that all of life, and particularly Jewish life, depends on what we feed our brains. The Maharal, being a descendant of King David, was an exceptional leader in Jewish life. And we find that this is true of all the descendants of King David, or should I say, all great leaders who were descendants of King David. There's a certain element of royalty that is inherited and that gets passed on generation after generation in the royal line. There's a, there's a story about the previous Rebbe's father and the previous Rebbe who were walking together in, uh, in some area in uh, in Petersburg when they came to the parade grounds where the Russian army the Tsar's army uh, would uh, would do their their parading and there was a box seat a stage with a, with a with a canopy where the Tsar would sit when he reviewed his troops this uh, the Tsar had passed away had died and um, the seat remained untouched. It was, it was cordoned off, it was roped off, and it was a historic site, and people did not, uh, did not use that stage or that seat. And in fact, there was a guard placed uh, to protect the, uh, the site. The Rebbe's father said to him, it would be very nice to, to sit down on that seat for a while. The Rebbe took a hint, the previous Rebbe got the hint, and he went and he distracted the guard and uh, drew him into some conversation. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Rebbe's father, Rebbe Rashab, um, covered his shoes with his handkerchiefs and walked up on the stage and sat down in the Tsar's uh, chair. He sat there for almost a half hour, and afterwards they went home. The Rebbe Rashab then proceeded to pen one of the most profound, elaborate, detailed uh, 
uh, innovative works in Hasidic philosophy. And he told his son that the germ, the idea that sparked this writing, he had thought of, had come to him while he was sitting on the seat on the Tsar's chair. Now, although the Tsar was a tyrant and somewhat uh, somewhat touched, not quite stable, and extremely cruel, yet the element of royalty, that power, that authority, that, that um, magnitude of vision that a Tsar is capable of, somehow uh, inspired the Rebbe to a greater thinking, to a greater um, discovery. And so we find that all the, the, uh, the great leaders in Jewish history who were descendants of King David had a certain flair, a certain greatness about them that was not limited to the Jewish community, and it affected uh, the entire population and in some cases even the entire world. The Maharal is famous not only among Jews, but even among the non-Jews of Transylvania, or whatever it was called in those days, of the vicinity of Prague. He was also proficient in subjects in addition to Torah. He was, he was, he was knowledgeable in philosophy and in science and in uh, astronomy. We find the same thing true of the Alter Rebbe, being a descendant of the Maharal. He was also uh, a leader whose influence reached far beyond the limits of his shtetl or of his co congregation or of his community or even of the Jewish people. And so the Tsar, in the times of the Alter Rebbe, uh, made him an honorary citizen or something of that kind of a title, a special title, because of the medicines, some skin medicines that he had, that he had discovered, and because of uh, his uh, knowledge and his help in the fields of science and, and mathematics, that he uh, that he offered the Tsar. In addition to which, he was also very much involved in the war between between Russia and France the Franco-Russian War, where he supported the Tsar against Napoleon. And his Hasidim, in many, many ways, served as, uh, as intelligence sources for the Tsar and helped in the war effort in, the, in, that, in that war. So the Al-Tarebbe was recognized as a leader, not only by Hasidim, not only by the Jewish people, but even by the government and by the uh, by the officials by the Tsar himself. That kind of leadership, that kind of authority, that enables a Jewish leader to speak to the entire world, um, comes from this element, from this quality called royalty, which of course exists in abundance in those who are descendants of King David, but others have it as well, or are capable of it as well. The ability to speak to the world, the ability to be a serve as a messenger of godly content to the entire world is something that we find at first with King David. 
Moses, of course, was a great Jewish leader, but we don't find that he had a message to the world. Not that his message wasn't relevant to the world, but he didn't address the world. He didn't speak to the nations of the world. He spoke to the Jewish people. Moses is called Moshe Rabbeinu. He is Moses, our teacher, our master. He is not called a king. King David is called a king. The story of Purim, where Esther took on responsibility for her entire people and went to speak to the king and to uh, annul the decree that Haman had made. Esther was a descendant of royalty. She was a granddaughter of King Saul. So this element of royalty is what gives a person that ability to speak universally, to think universally, and to be heard universally. Of course, there are many people who run around thinking universally, but nobody cares because their opinion doesn't count and they're simply wasting their time. They have illusions of grandeur. And so they think global thoughts, but they can't even take care of their own immediate needs. We're talking about someone whose global thoughts actually have an effect and influence the morality, the godliness, the goodness, the behavior of generations of, of people, Jews and non-Jews. So this quality of, of royalty, this quality of, of malchus, is where a person has a, uh, a powerful effect simply by the words that he uses. Any person whose words have an effect, whose words are heard, is displaying this quality called royalty or malchus. Because malchus, on the one hand, is related to kingdom, to, to rulership, but it's also related to speech. The combination tells us that a king rules through his words. A king doesn't work hard. A king doesn't get down and, and do the work. He orders it. He instructs, and it gets done because his words are heard, obeyed. His words have an effect. So a, a king governs by his words. There are people, surprisingly sometimes, whose words carry so much authority, whose words are listened to, obeyed, and heard, even though they're not the most brilliant people, they're not, they're not the wisest people, and what they say isn't unusually um, brilliant or intelligent. So that it may not even be their own thought. They may be repeating someone else's thoughts. They may be quoting some wisdom. But when they say it, everybody listens. When the, when the author of the wisdom said it, nobody paid attention. Because although he was brilliant, he didn't have this quality of malchus, this quality of royalty in his speech. So that people whose words have influence are basically using or displaying the quality of the, the attribute of malchus in their personality, in their soul. When words are heard, when words are effective, when you have that kind of authority, then your, your influence is not limited in any way to people who voted for you or people who, who uh, believe in you or people who uh, belong to your congregation or community because they're paid members. It's not limited in that way at all. The power of what you say 
reaches everywhere, affects everyone, and is in fact truly, truly universal. If there's anything we can learn from this, it's number one, the power of our words, that we have to be careful what we say, because once spoken, even an idea that had already been thought of before, or well-known uh, prior to the statement, but bringing it out into words, presenting it verbally, has a power of its own that is sometimes uh, stronger and greater than the idea itself. So putting an idea into words, putting a thought into words, is, is a... Uh, can be a risky thing and should be done cautiously. And that's why all wise people have always said silence is wonderful. You have a thought, don't necessarily say it. You said something, don't necessarily write it. You heard something, don't necessarily repeat it. Because putting things into words is a very responsible act and should be done very cautiously. The second thing we learn from this is that since we all have a quality of royalty in us, it's one of the ten faculties of the soul, we all have not only the ability to influence others, but the obligation to do so. Royalty is not a privilege, it's an obligation. As the, as the Gemara says, um, it is not Lord, Mos I think Mos Moses said to to, uh, to, to Yeshua, to Joshua. It is not lordship that I give you over the people. It is servitude to the people. Once you become their leader, once you become a king, you become a slave to the people. It's a servitude, not a lordship. So we all have this obligation, the servitude, of serving the people, of serving others, of being responsible for the community. The community, for most of us, consists of our immediate family. For some of us, if we have greater influence, more malchus, then it extends to our extended family. A greater influence than that is, of course, the congregation, then the community, the town, the country, and eventually the world. So each in our own way, each in our own little country, need to be the king of, of our country. And by that, we mean taking responsibility, the servitude, and feeling comfortable and, and actually grateful for the ability to be of service to the people, to serve others in a, in a leadership position. And in doing so, we need to be extremely careful. When our words are heard, and to those who listen to our words, we have to be very careful what we say and how we say it. Partner with Rabbi Friedman. Visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support.